traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As children, we're told not to talk to strangers. Yet as journalists, that's what many of us spend our lives doing. The fascinating and the dull, the ordinary and the famous. Asking questions in the hopes of learning something about them. Something true. But can we ever really know another person or their story? My guest today argues that though we might think that we've honed our ability to read others, actually humanity is pretty terrible at doing just this. The costs when something important is at stake can be shatteringly high. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And the stranger across the table from me is Malcolm Gladwell. He's a prolific author and podcaster whose work has turned challenging conventional wisdom into a fine art. His books include The Tipping Point, which explored how ideas go viral long before social media, and Outliers, known for its championing of the 10,000-hour rule for becoming a genius. He's also the regular host of the podcasts Revisionist History and Broken Record. His latest book is Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to The Economist House. Thank you. So tell me first, what is a stranger? What is a stranger? A stranger is someone who we have limited understanding of their perspective, background, culture, tradition. Or another way, maybe a more interesting way to say it is, a stranger is someone who we know in only one dimension. What presents itself to us? Yes, the one that presents itself. So with our, our friends and our intimates, we know in many different dimensions. We know them, you know, I know my mother as a woman, as my mother, as a writer, as a Canadian, as a, you know, I could go on, but as a stranger is someone who were quite limited in the way we approach them. And you start the book with an anecdote about your father who had a wonderful conversation about gardening with a celebrity, and he was blissfully unaware of who they were. And sometimes the best conversations, you say, between strangers allow the stranger to remain a stranger. Just tell us briefly about that and what are you warning against in that anecdote? My father came to New York to visit me, and I put him and my mother up in a very kind of shishi hotel called the Mercer Hotel, which is home to many celebrities. And my father, it's sort of a joke because my father knew nothing about celebrities. And one day I came to pick him up at the hotel, and he had just, he reported he had had a long conversation, a lovely conversation with some very interesting man. And he said the only curious thing was that people kept coming up to the man and asking him to sign, quote, bits of paper, unquote. So it was clearly a celebrity and he had no idea who this man was. And I couldn't, he couldn't, I tried to, for years since I've been trying to figure out, I actually think it was someone like Rob, must have been someone like Robert Redford, but someone of his age. But the point was, my father managed to have an absolutely lovely a natural encounter, conversation. natural encounter with this person without forcing the question of making this person disclose who they were. And that's a really lovely thing because I think that one of the mistakes we make in our encounters with strangers is that we're far too ambitious in trying to decode them and make sense of them in a very short period of time. And that process is fraught with error. We should be, I think, a lot more cautious in the way we try to make sense of those we don't know. 
Well, let's look a bit more about why this matters, because if it was simply about the way that we behave when we meet other people and a kind of social politeness, the odd bit of comedy when I don't realise that you're mega famous, that that would be one thing. But you actually think that there is, is damage to the consequences of these misunderstandings. And the story of Sandra Bland is obviously very motivating for you. Yeah, so Sandra Bland is one of those wave of cases of encounters between police officers in and African-Americans that were for about three years, a few years ago in America. These were front and center. There were about a dozen of these high-profile cases, the most famous of which being Ferguson, the shooting of a young black male named Michael Brown. Sandra Bland was one was uh, in one of those line, one in the line of those cases, and she was a young woman, young black woman who was coming from a job interview in a small Texas town, gets pulled over for a minor traffic infraction by a white police officer. Their encounter goes awry. They get essentially get into an argument. Don't touch me. I'm not under arrest. You don't have the right to say you me. are under arrest. I'm under arrest for what? Twenty five forty seven County FM ten ninety eight. For what? Two ninety. Send me another unit. Get out of the car. Get out of the car now! Why am I being apprehended? You're trying to give me a ticket I said, for get failure? out of the car. Why am I being apprehended? You I'm giving you an awful order. Door. You I'm going to drag you out of here. So you're going you're to drag me out of my own car? Get out of the car! It is painful to listen to. He eventually pulls her out of the car, arrests her. She goes put in jail, and she commits suicide three days later. It's one of the most, to me it was anyway, the most heart-wrenching and also baffling of these encounters. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was a powerful way into this general problem that had been, that I've been thinking about for quite some time, which is that there seems to be something very wrong with the strategies we're using when we approach strangers. In other words, the same things that in human interaction that make perfect sense when I know you clearly don't work when I don't know you. So I set out to write a book that begins and ends with the Sandra Bland story begins by laying out the mystery. How could a completely banal encounter in the middle of the day between a police officer and a woman over a failure to signal changing lanes, I mean, the most preposterously trivial of infractions, lead to tragedy? And then I sort of spend the middle part of the book looking at other similar kinds of cases. So, for example, I have a chapter on Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff is actually, weirdly, the same problem Right? It is... He of the mega Ponzi scheme. Yes, the most fraud, the notorious Ponzi schemer of all time. It's, the, it's a version of the same problem. It is investors come to Bernie Madoff, give him their money in the belief that they understand who he is. And they make all kinds of assumptions about him based on... I mean, no one knew him intimately. They met him in a conference room. He did his little pitch and they wired him millions of dollars. And, and yet their understanding of him was completely incorrect. And yet these cases are so very different. And I wonder whether you're able to yoke them together. Because if you take the Sandra Bland case, you say, if we were more thoughtful as a society, if we were willing to engage in soul-searching about how we approach and make sense of strangers, she would not have ended up dead in a Texas jail cell. Now, at that point, I did slightly recall because I thought it's always very difficult. So I suppose I'm just probing a bit on what you consider to be specific and what you consider to be general here. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that case is that it is both completely sui generis and idiosyncratic. It is a highly unusual specific encounter between a woman who was emotionally unstable, as we 
came to learn, and a, a, a police officer who is not the, not the most socially adept police officer. So it's a very particular case. Yet at the same time, when you step back, there is something powerfully typical about that case. There are all kinds of very, very general lessons that can be extracted from it, from everything. A good chunk of the book, for example, is devoted to an examination of the law enforcement strategy that would lead a police officer to pull over a woman in the middle of the day for a harmless traffic infraction. That wasn't a kind of idiosyncratic independent act. He did that for a reason. He did that because there is a philosophy of policing that has taken hold in urban America over the last generation and also other other countries as well, which has required police officers to do these kinds of engagements with civilians in the faint hope that they may uncover some kind of criminality. So by looking at it through a slightly different lens, we see that, well, it's not just about a weird cop encountering a troubled woman. It's a consequence of a considered law enforcement strategy put in place over many years by people much higher up the food chain than that poor police officer. And similarly, if you look at the the psychological dynamics of the police officer's interaction with Sandra Bland, you can see that they are, again, powerfully typical of the way in which we tend to misunderstand people we don't know. And you have three theories about this. Experience should have taught me never to ask authors about their three key theories because we could be here for uh, most of the day. But just give them, give us a quick menu of what your theories are as to why we so persistently misunderstand people. And this, of course, goes yeah. a lot broader than the Sandra Bland so case. There's, a, there's several that I choose to highlight in the book, and I'll touch on two. One is what's termed as a wonderful brilliant psychologist named Tim Levine, who has come up with an idea which he calls default to truth, who was trying to answer this longstanding puzzle in psychology, which is, why are humans so bad at detecting lies? And you would think that we would be good at it. You would think that evolution would have selected those who who were adept at knowing when they were being deceived. It turns out not to be true at all. What's, Um, What's the evidence? So this has now been shown, you know, literally hundreds of times in numerous experiments, that if I give you a a series of videotapes, half of which are people telling lies and half of which are people telling the truth, and I ask you to tell me which is which, you will get about 52 to 53 percent of the answers correct. So I might conclude that roughly, I'm just guessing, it's almost 50-50-ish. Yes, you're not in fact guessing. Mm -hmm. This is Levine's big point. What you're doing is you are, you are entering the process with the assumption that people are telling the truth. So you have a default to truth. Your overwhelming inclination is to say that's truthful. And then in a small number of cases where there is – there seems like an overwhelming evidence of deception, you're willing to challenge that conception. So you're basically saying true, 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 true. Hmm, maybe false. True, 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 true. That's what you're doing. And he says that's powerfully characteristic of human beings because that's why we've able, been able to build society, functioning societies. It doesn't work if you are skeptical of everything people say. We couldn't have this conversation if we were challenging each other at every moment. You couldn't build a financial system. You, couldn't, you wouldn't send your children to school if you didn't default to truth, right? Because you would, you'd, you'd sit at home worrying about whether every teacher was a pedophile and every bus driver was a criminal and, uh, you know, you would... So it's useful, but it's it, could also, useful. it also has tripwires. 
So the question for, for you, I suppose, the squeezing question I had as I went on through the book, we might come to an intelligence and intended deceit in, in a moment, but I wanted to ask you about the Amanda Knox case. You say she spent four years in an Italian prison for the crime of not behaving the way we think people are supposed to behave after their roommate is murdered. What makes you think that as opposed to there was just a catalogue of disasters in forensics and police work? This actually goes back to Tim Levine's arguments about why is it that we are so bad at understanding whether someone is telling us a lie or the truth? And he says that there are a specific category of people, communicators, who we have trouble with. And he calls them people who are mismatched. And by mismatch, he means that we are if – you, if you look at a, a universe of people who are trying to judge the truth or falsity of a statement, you'll see that they always get the same ones right and the same ones wrong. We get people right when there is a match between the emotional intention of the person and the way those emotions are manifested in their demeanor and their affect and their facial expressions and all those kinds of things. So a matched person would be if someone is nervous and they're sweating visibly and their knee is bouncing up and down, that's matched. We have a stereotype in our head about what nervousness looks like. And here we have a nervous person matching the stereotype. So if I ask you, is that person nervous? And you say, yes, they are. You're going to get that person right. But there's a category of people who will sweat profusely and bounce their knee up and down when they're not nervous at all, right? Those kinds of people we have trouble with. Overwhelmingly, people around the world in many different cultures believe that gaze aversion, looking away, being shifty-eyed, is a sign of deception. When someone is lying and they shift their eyes, we're all good at saying they're lying. But there are lots of people who don't shift their eyes and lie and shift their eyes and aren't lying. They are mismatched and we have trouble with them. So there are numerous examples of mismatch. Amanda Knox was a very convenient example of mismatch because it's a case we're all familiar with. And if you read the books on Amanda Knox or watch the documentaries, they all come back to the same issue, which is that she seemed, she acted in a way that was weird. What they're saying is they're all harping on the same point, which is she's mismatched. She's classic, classic mismatch. She's an awkward, slightly immature teenager who does not match Italian and English tabloid stereotypes of what distressed roommates are supposed to behave. These stories are deliberately chosen in illustration of some very well-researched, well-considered, and well-regarded scientific work. Levine also makes this argument, which is a very good one, which is he says, once you understand how extraordinarily useful default to truth is, then you realize that we should look on those occasions when our that tendency to believe leads us to be deceived or betrayed as the necessary costs associated with the broader good of having a high-trust society. Don't respond to Bernie Madoff by unleashing a tsunami of regulation on the financial industry. Understand that, you know what, the financial industry works pretty well, but one consequence of a high-trust world where we let people associate freely is that once a generation, someone's going to come along and run a Ponzi scheme. You know what? It's a small price to pay for a functional system. And I agree with that. Let's look at the implications of changing world of data and privacy or less and less privacy and the impact of social media. That must challenge your working idea of what a stranger is at all. I mean, what am I supposed to make of my X thousand 
Twitter followers and your X many more. I mean, we are now sharing so many more intimate details of our lives and our thoughts with many more people. Does that change anything? I think it makes some of these fundamental issues that we have with those we don't know much more consequential. I mean, I think that the trajectory that we are on as a world is that the number of encounters that we have with people who we have limited knowledge is multiplying. That's why I sort of thought this was a pressing issue to write about. That's obviously a process that's been going on for a long time, but I think it's in the process of acceleration at the moment. And as that is based on algorithms and the gathering of data and their sensitivity about Mm -hmm. that politically and also in our our personal lives of where we want to draw the line, uh, what about AI and the notion that, that AI can hold the solution to some of our biases. It's something we write about a lot at The Economist, actually, using uh, programs to to look better at applications so we're not subconsciously screening out candidates who may not suit a a view of what a person should look like who works for an organisation. How do you feel about that? I mean, you said a moment ago you thought we kind of had to live with the imperfections almost I'm sort of putting words in your mouth, the price of a free society to an extent. But there are other challenges, aren't there? Which is, well, if I'm not so good at it, why don't I just get the computer to make the decision for me? Yeah. Funny, I have a chapter um, in my book that deals with this precise issue, which which I'm talking about in the context of judges making bail decisions. Defendant stands in front of the judge. The judge has to decide, do I release this person until trial or do I put them in prison until trial? Are they likely to commit another crime? in the interim or not. That is an extremely difficult decision. And when we look at how effective judges are at gauging, predicting the dangerousness of a defendant, they're not very good at it. And when we look at how machine learning systems and AI systems and algorithms do, they tend to do better, actually much better than the judge, right? So there's an instance where we have clear evidence that a disembodied computer can be more accurate in making a prediction about a human being than a judge can. That is a clear opportunity for improving the system. But I had a long discussion with a judge in New York about this problem. And he pointed out that simultaneously, though, the legitimacy of the criminal justice system depends on human beings making judgments. So if you replace the judge with a computer, it may be that the computer is more accurate, but it also means you will undermine the very trust that makes the system work in the first place. The only reason the justice system works, is that all of us enter into the courtroom with a belief that what will happen in there is something that is legitimate, fair. A lot of your research says we've been wrong in that assumption. So, no. So what I was going to say was, what this suggests to me is that we need to be artful in the way we combine these two sources of insight. You can't throw out the, the, the right answer is not to throw out the judge because that undermines the legitimacy of the system. But at the same time, the right answer is don't close the door to tools that can help the judge make a better decision just because they happen to be scary or newfangled. You need to do both. You need to be, we need to be thoughtful about how we can integrate the wisdom of things like AI with human decision-making systems that can confer legitimacy on the process. We can't end without talking about politics and where what you've written about uh, leaves our muddled politics on both sides of the Atlantic at the moment. So I think I'll just ask you, who do you think is most misunderstood or is having most difficulty with that sense of strangers having views of them which may not be uh, accurate? That's a very interesting question. Well, you know, the thing about politics is 
You know, one of the ideas I talk about in the book is this idea of transparency, which is another uh, assumption that leads us awry, which is this assumption that the way people, I, I talked about before, the way people present themselves is indicative of the way they feel, that there's a correspondence between interstates and outer representations. The transparency assumption means that anyone running for public office has to conform to the principles of transparency if they expect to proceed. You cannot be Amanda Knox and run for public office, right? Because you're asked to present yourself in very broad forums to people who don't know you in the slightest. And if you deviate from our expectation of how that how your behavior is supposed to proceed, you'll be penalized. Well, you're obviously not penalized, are you? Otherwise, you wouldn't have Donald Trump in the White House, who in every sense did not accord with what oh, I think a, a, a candidate for the presidency looked oh, like. Oh, no, to the contrary. I would say that there is no – we're talking about slightly different things here, but Donald Trump's interstates and his outer representations are perfectly matched. When he is disgusted, he – Shows disgust. No man has ever done less to mask his 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 inner feelings than Donald Trump, which is, I think, a powerful reason why he is so popular. Is that that codes to many people as authenticity, right? He makes no attempt whatsoever to filter his feelings. They spill out of him at three o'clock in the morning on Twitter. I mean, politics powerfully favors those who have this direct correspondence between the way they feel and the way they act, particularly contemporary politics, which are so concerned with public persona and the aura of celebrity and all those kinds of things. That's interesting, but almost, I'm sure you don't mean this politically, it's a sort of almost a kind reading of, of Donald Trump. You think he's actually, he's made for the job? No. Why? No, I mean that he's, I mean, as a corresponds between his interstates and his representations. I, that's not a value judgment. That's an observation about the way he expresses his character. I happen to think that's wholly inappropriate and that, in fact, to, do a, to be an effective leader, you have to learn to mask your inner feelings, which is to my point, though, going back to the question of who is misunderstood, it's becoming increasingly difficult for people who are mismatched to operate successfully in public life. That because we have, the expectations culture is so strong. Yes, we have come to emphasize so much the validity and importance of personal representation that we have penalized an entire group of people who may be extraordinarily capable but don't match this kind of stereotypical picture of how they're supposed to present themselves emotionally. And if you were to look at the democratic race, uh, which it seems now to be going to just to be with us all the way, way through, it started so early. So we've seen a very broad field. What do you make of that? And where does that uh, leave your theory on who is matched and mismatched or whose struggles do you think to be understood by strangers, which in a way is, I suppose, what yeah. that's all about, the early process. The idea that you can have a debate with 10 people in it where everyone is only can only speak for two minutes at a time and use that as a basis to make a rational judgment about who is best capable of leading your country is absurd. In any selection procedure, there needs to be some correspondence between what the job being selected for entails and what you are assessing in the in well, the, you have to in the cut selection through, process. Don't you? you have to cut through to a very large and diverse country and you're put on the spot for a very brief amount of time. That seems fair enough to me. Uh, well, you know, I would like to have a debate that uh, was so fair that it was, that it was barely watchable. I, I think that the debate should last for five hours. 
Why not? Like, you got 10 people. Let's, let's do it for five hours. And then if you really want to understand this person, you have to, like, make a commitment. You can't reduce it to – it's basically a beauty pageant at the moment. So democracy so good you want to make it that boring? I think making it a little boring would be really, really helpful right now. There's another tension, and it goes through the races as we look to, to 2020 in the U.S., and that's identity politics and the kind of misunderstandings that either arise about that or from that. I mean, what, what is your own view or, or bias on that? Because you can feel it kind of stalking this race already as to the extent to which candidates are basically trying to represent something related to views of identity politics, often uh, more to the left, and those who are pulling against it and saying this actually undermines the kind of pluralism, the inclusivity of democracy. Yeah. Think? I've never understood... I have to say I'm, I, I'm very baffled by the phrase identity politics. I don't really understand privileged white men didn't have to play identity politics because they embodied identity politics. So I find it very confusing. When a black woman somehow makes reference to the fact that she's a black woman, she's, we say she's playing identity politics. But I think that one of the wonderful things about contemporary society uh, particularly the younger generation, is how seriously they are taking this problem of explaining ourselves to each other and how they have expanded the palette of what is considered to be relevant in explaining thing, explaining ourselves to each other. That is a hugely important advance that I think those of us who are old and doddering and out of it could do well to learn from. Not so doddering, but uh, just who do you think is the person that you've met in your own life who surprised you almost overturned your own preconceptions over the years. And I think this is actually a very common one. I had a teacher when I was in high school, an English teacher, who at the time I had great difficulty with. And his name was Mr. Exley. And I found him overly kind of prescriptive and rigid and didactic. And and then about Everyone's favorite, not favorite teacher by the sound of it. At, no, at the time he was not. But then about 10 years later... When I was a writer by profession, I look back on the things I learned in his classroom and I realized that they were absolutely central to my development. And I think this is true of many great teachers, is that there is often a gap between your experience with them and your understanding of their usefulness and importance in your life. And that the better the teacher is, often the longer the gap is. That sometimes when they're teaching you really sophisticated and important things, of necessity, you're not going to grasp them until you are an adult, a mature person deep into your career. And that was a very important lesson about how you have to learn to distrust some of the conclusions you draw about people in the moment and be willing to revisit them much later in your life. There's a certain discipline involved, in other words, with getting to know people that I think we neglect. We've just met, so we're not entirely strangers. We don't know each other well, we've, but we have just met for the podcast. So how was it? Oh, I thought it was quite fun. Didn't you? I did think it was quite fun. <laughs> I, I, I like the qualifier there. They're quite fun. Well, I mean... You're not I'm, quite trusting strangers yet there. I'm, I'm in England. I'm allowed to be reserved in, my, in the, the quality of my, of my judgments. You've definitely arrived in the UK. Malcolm Gladwell, no longer a stranger. Thank you very much. Thank you. And as always, we'd love to know what you think. Do our approaches to policing or politics set us up for miscommunication or even disaster? Can we truly know another person? 
And have you had any surprises in your encounters with strangers we could learn from? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer 12 issues for £12 or $12 and then we really won't be strangers. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.